0: A patient comes into your emergency room with trauma to their head. Is it more difficult to make an acute diagnosis of brain death than if the patient is on the floor? You are listening to ReachMD XM 157, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I am your host, Dr. Mark Nolan Hill, Professor of Surgery at Chicago Medical School. And with me today is Dr. David Greer, Assistant Professor of Neurology at the Massachusetts General Hospital and Harvard Medical School in Boston, Massachusetts. Dr. Greer directed a national survey of neurology and neurosurgical programs to analyze policies for making brain death declarations. Welcome, Dr. Greer. Thanks for having me. Today we are discussing the acute determination of brain death. Dr. Greer, a patient comes to the emergency room and has had trauma to their brain, and there is a concern that they may be brain dead. Is it more difficult, and what protocol do you go through to determine if this patient is viable?
1: Well, we go through the same protocol as we would for any other patient. We look to make sure that the cause of the neurological state is known, and in this case it would be the head trauma, and is known to be irreversible. We look for anything that might be potentially a surgical lesion, such as a intracerebral hemorrhage, a subdural hematoma, uh, hydrocephalus, something like that, that we could potentially treat differently. And then we consider whether uh, the patient actually does fulfill those baseline prerequisites for going on to doing a clinical determination of brain death. I think in somebody who comes in through the emergency room and they're a head trauma, you also need to think about whether they may have drug or alcohol intoxication on board, which might also throw off the exam potentially. And then you have to think about whether you can even perform a clinical examination safely in the patient who has head trauma. In other words, do they have severe facial trauma where you would draw into question the validity of trying to look at pupils if you can't see them correctly or you can't perform an oculocephalic maneuver or the doll's eyes maneuver as it's commonly known if they have a C-spine injury. These are all things that need to be taken into consideration when you're looking at a patient in the emergency room. But you can potentially perform a adequate brain death determination in the emergency room setting, but it can be a little bit more difficult. But the same rules apply. You still go through the step-by-step basis.
0: Let's say a patient is coming in and we are doing cardiopulmonary resuscitation. And let's say we're getting some response, but we're looking at their pupils and trying to assess their brain to determine whether we should stop our resuscitation.
1: You can't actually do any kind of a brain death determination in that setting, and if you think that the patient potentially is not brain-dead, then you obviously have to continue your CPR in that patient. So you, you you can't make any determination whatsoever during that time. I think the rules of a code apply regardless of that. Do you have a treatable rhythm? How long have you been trying to regather the circulation of the patient? These are all the things that get taken into consideration when you have a cardiopulmonary collapse, and you need to consider that, but the brain doesn't come into the equation in that setting. The only time in my mind that it potentially would would be if you know that you have a catastrophic brain injury and the patient has herniated, and that's why they're having their code. I think in a circumstance like that, then there's no point in continuing, Uh, but you have to know that, though. If the patient just comes in to the emergency room with head trauma, no neuroimaging, and has a code, then you code them.
0: Could you expand a bit about the greatest pitfalls that you've seen personally in terms of mistakes in brain death determination?
1: The biggest problems that I've seen are in the physicians not checking the prerequisites, making sure that there's no drug intoxication, sedatives on board, opiates, making sure that they don't have a severe electrolyte imbalance, hyperaminemia, something that would throw off the clinical exam. That's the most common thing that I see done. The second most common thing that's concerning is problems during the apnea test, not understanding how to do it correctly, not pre-oxygenating the patient. You need to make sure that the patient does not become hypoxic during the test, so pre-oxygenation is key. Uh, And then knowing what the numbers mean when you check the post-ABG with the pre-ABG to make sure that you've reached the criteria. Those are the most concerning pitfalls that I see in brain death determination in my hospital.
0: Now, many times the neurosurgeon will look at the CAT scan by still being at home and have it transmitted electronically. And let's say that they say this is not something that I would operate on or or would not be a surgical lesion. If we are in the emergency room and we are unfamiliar with determining the specific guidelines of brain death, should we call a neurologist and are neurologists amenable to coming in at three o'clock in the morning to make this determination?
1: Well, it depends on where you're working and who's able to determine brain death at your hospital. I think that this is such an important diagnosis that if your hospital does not have the people who are comfortable making this determination, then they should be transferred to someplace that does, such as potentially a, a tertiary care center. Now, not all hospitals have neurologists who feel comfortable with doing the determination, nor do they feel comfortable coming in at 3 o'clock in the morning or willing to come in at 3 o'clock in the morning. So those are some of the things that people can run into trouble with.
0: If you have just joined us, you're listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on REACH MD XM157. I am your host, Dr. Mark Nolan-Hill, Professor of Surgery at Chicago Medical School, and with me today is Dr. David Greer, Assistant Professor of Neurology at the Massachusetts General Hospital and Harvard Medical School. We are discussing the acute determination of brain death. Dr. Greer, if we do not have the specific protocol or the qualified physicians to make the determination of brain death in, let's say, an emergency situation, you mentioned that is appropriate then to transfer the patient for that determination?
1: I think it would be perfectly appropriate. Remember that it's a medical legal diagnosis or definition of death And it also has the potential for being a potential organ donor. So patients who are declared brain dead still have the very large potential for becoming organ donors should their family decide that that's what was compatible with the patient's wishes. So it's important in these days where there's such a huge organ shortage that we not miss these potential opportunities. And if one hospital is unable to determine brain death because of whatever reason, then I would strongly advocate for transferring to a facility where they could do the determination and potentially work towards a very noble goal, such as uh, organ donation.
0: Can the ancillary tests take the place of a clinical exam?
1: They can take the cl- place of a clinical exam if the clinical exam is drawn into question. But remember that brain death determination is first a clinical determination, and that's only when the clinical determination comes into question that the ancillary test is ordered.
0: If we are unsure that we are doing a satisfactory examination, is it okay to go forward to the ancillary tests?
1: Well, that's a controversial question. I don't know that any guidelines that I've seen have ever said if there is not the level of expertise at doing a clinical determination, then the patient should go to an ancillary test. I would question whether... There would be the comfort level with determining the answers on the ancillary test in a situation like that. The ancillary tests need a level of expertise for interpreting them as well. So, again, it would be a situation in which I think that you might consider transferring the patient to another facility that does have
0: that kind of expertise. What are your thoughts about using the EEG as an ancillary test?
1: Well, I don't like to use it very often because in the ICU setting it can create a significant amount of artifact which can create the impression that there is some electrical activity and thereby draw the test into question. So it's not my ancillary test of choice. It can be useful if it does show a uh, complete electrical silence, but again if there's somebody that just simply knocks the bed or the machine and creates a little bit of artifact on there, it draws the whole test into question and then you go on to something different.
0: Sometimes there's clinical observations that are compatible with the diagnosis of brain death, such as spontaneous movements or sweating or blushing. Could you comment on these, please?
1: Right. These can be very disturbing. You can even have a patient that is crossing their arms across their body or jerking their limbs in certain ways. Whenever you see something like that, you have to draw the examination into question and get an ancillary test. That's the only reason that we know when these movements occur, that they are spinally mediated because you have an ancillary test that there are actually findings that are compatible with brain death. But they're very disturbing when you see these because you draw the whole thing into question, but you have to find that they are truly spinally mediated reflexes.
0: Well, how do you determine that?
1: You determine it by getting an ancillary test in those situations because you can't trust the clinical examination. If they're otherwise fulfilling all the criteria, but they're doing these spontaneous abnormal movements, then you're obligated to go on and get an ancillary test to make sure that these are spinally-mediated movements and not cerebrally-mediated.
0: Is this sometimes a concern that these are misinterpreted?
1: They absolutely can be misinterpreted as cerebrally-mediated reflexes, and thereby the patient would not be determined brain death, which would be a misdiagnosis as well, and again, a, a missed opportunity potentially for organ donation or at least providing finality for families who are uncertain about prognosis.
0: Let's talk about documentation for a second. We know that we're always taught that if you don't write it down, it didn't happen. When you get asked, Dr. Greer, to consult on a patient to determine brain death by your clinical determination, do you write down all of the different parameters that you have been discussing in this past hour?
1: I do. Well, I write down all of the clinical examination findings. I write down that there were no confounding factors and that these were all checked. And I write down the results of the apnea testing, exactly what the ABG was prior to the test, how long the apnea test was performed for, and what the ABG showed after the patient was reconnected to the ventilator, but before they were started on
0: breaths again. What have been the responses of your suggestions from your research study?
1: Well, we didn't really make any suggestions. All we did was report the findings. But I can say that there has been a lot of hubbub about this study that people are quite shocked that there's such a a difference in practice, or at least I shouldn't say a difference in practice. I should say there's a difference in what the guidelines across the country are saying. Again, we don't know what the actual practice was because this study didn't actually assess that but the guidelines are quite different across the country. And that, that raised a lot of eyebrows for people. And it's, it's raised the issue that maybe the national bodies, such as the American Academy of Neurology, should be putting forth much more stringent practice parameters that can be followed and potentially enforced.
0: You being in Boston and a major Harvard hospital, that being the Brigham and being Mass General, and you had mentioned that they have different criteria. Based on your study now, will that change?
1: Well, has changed. Again, I spoke with Marty Samuels who's the chair of neurology at the Brigham and they've made their guidelines much more close to what is stipulated in our guidelines. So I think that things are already starting to change but that was on a very personal level. I I basically spoke face-to-face with Marty and pointed out some of the differences and, and he agreed with what I was saying. So I think that things were moving in that direction just because of our personal relationship. I can't tell you how it might happen on a national level now but I I hope that it simply improves things in terms of our care of
0: these patients. I want to thank our guest, Dr. David Greer. We have been discussing the acute determination of brain death. I'm Dr. Mark Nolan-Hill, and you have been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. Be sure to visit our website, www.reachmd.com, now featuring on-demand podcasts of our entire library. For comments and questions, please send your email to xm at reachmd.com. And thank you for listening.